Hear God's word this morning from John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine till now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. This is God's word. Please be seated. certainly was good to have a college student come to the pulpit. I just want to say, no one's ever applauded when I come to the pulpit, you know. I feel... Well, thank you. (laughs) So my goal this morning is summarized in verse 11. So verse 11 says, This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So my goal this morning is that we would enter into this house of wine, this wedding banquet, and as we do so, we, uh, through God's word, by his spirit, would uh, see the first of his signs such that uh, Jesus' glory is revealed to us so that we might believe in Him. Now, we know from John's Gospel that the purpose of faith is that we would have life. And by life, John means life to the full. That is, life that is eternal life and is the fullness of life. Um, Life as it was meant to be. Originally created in in Genesis, now Jesus comes to redeem us so that we might enter into life and life in all its fullness through faith in Him, through believing in Him. So again, my goal is that we would enter into this house of wine, this wedding, this uh, marriage, uh, this wedding at Cana in Galilee, and as we enter into this house of wine, we would see by God's Spirit through His Word the, uh, the glory that, uh, is, that Jesus reveals his glory there, and so believe in him. And the particular aspect of his glory that is revealed is, I think, his joy. Now, for us to do that, I need to tell the story of the wedding, so we're going to do that, but I also need to define 
some of our terms. So we've used a couple of terms there. One is joy. What is joy? Joy. Joy is the inner conviction that life is going according to God's plan despite all appearances to the contrary. It is the power of the Spirit that comes, that, that comes to us and causes us to have the fruit of the Spirit of joy. So joy is not merely being happy with what happens. It is rejoicing despite what happens. So joy is an act of will and a gift of God. That's what I mean by joy. What about glory? What does glory mean? Glory in the Bible is the shining revelation of the person of God. Uh, it is often associated with seeing His glory because it is the revelation of who God is. Uh, John chapter 1 begins, the Word became flesh and we have seen His glory. So here when it says that Jesus revealed or manifested or showed His glory, it means He did something to show us that He was God. And the particular aspect of that that I think this house of wine is intended to reveal is the joy of knowing God. Glory, joy, and therefore we believe in Him. We trust Him with our lives. That's what I want us to experience. To do that, I need to tell the story. And there are different ways of telling the story, but I'm just going to break it down into what I think are the three main characters in the story. You know, every story is constructed in um, a typical pattern. Uh, there's a uh, There's a there's a plot, uh, there is a uh, conflict, uh, there is a resolution, <clears throat> and then there are the characters of the story. And here, I think the key characters are the ones that create a surprise. And um, so the three characters, I think, that are the key here are actually the mother of Jesus, for there's a surprise around the mother of Jesus. Then the wine... There's a surprise that Jesus miraculously turns water into wine. And uh, then there's the response of the disciples. Whoa, we believe in him. So those are the three key characters that each of them has a surprise that are intended to reveal Jesus' glory through this miraculous sign that we might believe in him. And the particular aspect of glory is joy. Joy defined and glory defined as we just have defined those two words. So that's where we're going. At the end of this, I hope that we would have tasted and seen that God is good and therefore rejoice. So first, the mother. That's the first character. The mother, the wine, the disciples. First, the mother. Look at verses 1 to 5. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, this is the third day. 
we're told. That is the third of John's three next day descriptions in chapter one of how John the Baptist pointed people to Jesus. And on the third of these days, he's just said to Nathaniel that Nathaniel will see heaven opened. And on that same day, there is this house of wine with a miracle of water being turned into wine and Jesus showing his glory. And he's at a wedding. And of course, marriages in the Bible point to the ultimate marriage, the banquet in heaven of the bride and the bridegroom, Christ and the church. It's not then by accident that Jesus chooses a wedding and a marriage to reveal who he is. So those of us who are married, would you please remember that your wedding, your marriage is not only for you. Your marriage is a sign of the glory of Christ. Your marriage is intended to be a pulpit that preaches the gospel. Marriage is designed right from the beginning, Paul tells us in Ephesians, marriage is designed right, designed right from the beginning to reveal a mystery That is Christ and his love. So when you do the hard work in your marriage of loving each other, of submitting to each other, of giving way, of of saying, no, that's not my preference, but I'll do that for the sake of my wife, or saying, no, that's not my preference, but I'll do that for the sake of my husband. When you do that hard work, not only are you building a healthy marriage, which is where we tend to teach, you are actually also proclaiming the supernatural revelation of Christ and his gospel and his love. It's such a motivating thought for you when you're in the trenches doing the hard work of your marriage. When you're biting your tongue and not speaking in anger, you are actually doing evangelistic work, you are doing proclamation work, it is a pulpit. He's at a wedding and it is not by accident that he's there. His mother uh, comes up to Jesus at this wedding in Cana of Galilee, Cana about 10 miles or so from Jesus' home, and so it's quite possible that he uh, was at a wedding of a relative of Jesus's. Uh, The wine runs out, and this is a serious problem, because providing the wine for weddings was at the time the responsibility of the groom, and for the wine to run out was a serious problem. Possibly even, some scholars think, it could have led to a lawsuit from the bride's family. And Jesus' mother, Mary, uh, who never goes by her name in John's gospel. Two instances where she's mentioned, she's always called the mother of Jesus. Not to disrespect her, but in the context of John's gospel, who also doesn't have a narrative of the um, infant story either, it is to make sure that uh, in John's gospel, our focus and our attention is all on who Jesus is. It's a very high Christology in John's gospel. That is a very high view of who Jesus is as God. And John, the, the, the author of, uh, of the gospel of John, John does not want us to be distracted by the subsidiary characters. He wants us to, yes, to hear about the mother, but only so that we might give attention to the son. She says they have no wine. Probably she felt some responsibility because a relative of hers was being married, and she may even have had some catering role. You can imagine if 
you were responsible for catering a very large wedding. This was probably a very large wedding. They had um, 80 gallons of water for Jewish purification rites, so there were probably a lot of people there. And weddings in those days went on for seven days, and so it was a huge responsibility, and uh, the wine has run out. She's bringing it to Jesus' attention. Not because uh, Jesus has done miracles already as he's been growing up, I don't think, but because Jesus, as an eminent and godly and um, wise son, has already established that he is a person of resources, and so his mother goes to him for her help. What, what can you do about this, Jesus? And Jesus replies in these rather, well, controversial or strange words, woman, What does this have to do with me? By calling his mother woman, Jesus is not being rude. He calls her by the same name uh, when he is tenderly asking one of his disciples to take care of his mother when he is dying on the cross. Now, it's not typical in those days to call your mother woman, but it was not rude either. Perhaps equivalent to the French madame or the southern Ma'am. But the next phrase is more pointed. What does this have to do with me? And actually, in the Bible, that particular phrase is used in the Old Testament always as an implied rebuke. And one instance in the New Testament is when uh, the man with a legion of demons falls uh, at uh, Jesus' feet and cries out to Jesus, What does this have to do with? with me and you. In other words, what, it, it's, a, it's at least a distancing yourself from the other person and could be a strong rebuke. In other words, Mary has crossed a line. Why? My hour has not yet come. The hour in John's gospel refers to Jesus' hour of death and resurrection. So Mary is enthusiastic for Jesus to go public with his ministry, but the time for the culmination of his glory being revealed is not yet. And while Jesus does perform this first sign, it was not a public sign. Now we know about it because it's recorded in John's Gospel. But at the time, it was only known to his immediate family, the servants and his disciples. And so uh, the mother of Jesus then responds, do whatever he tells you. In other words... She doesn't say, um, do what I tell you to the servants. She is submitting to Jesus and his authority. She recognizes that she's been at least mildly corrected, and she says to the servants, okay, do what he tells you. Now, how does all this help us with this glory, this joy that has been revealed? Here's how. It is very easy, isn't it, for us to associate Christianity with the so-called experts or those who look like they have the inside track. But actually, Jesus will not here let uh, himself or his own identity or his agenda or his mission be defined by anyone else other than himself. And it's so important that we take that discipline, isn't it? In these days, when there are fake news about Christianity all over the place, 
that Christianity is associated not with a wedding but with a funeral. It is so important that we don't allow ourselves to be persuaded by the so-called expert who is on YouTube and it frustrates me because you find someone who's got you know, 50,000 followers on YouTube and has studied two years of theology and is propounding, propounding all these ridiculous ideas about Jesus. And he's putting himself, as it were, in, as a barrier between discovering who Jesus is by claiming that he is the real avenue that we must go through and he has the inside track. And what I want us to do is to remove all that this morning and focus on Jesus and his word. And not allow ourselves to be persuaded by those siren voices out there that say that actually I have an expertise because I studied at this university or I've done this, that, or the other. But ourselves get into the word, ourselves look at who Jesus is, ourselves encounter Jesus, ourselves find that Jesus reveals his glory not at a funeral, not at a sports game, not at any of these other associations, not by injustice, not in racism, but in a wedding, in a place of celebration. That is where his glory is revealed. And we Christians, and those of us here who this morning are searching for the truth, we need to be disciplined to say, no, I am going to allow my mind only to be defined, only to define who Jesus is by what and how Jesus is revealed in his word, how his glory is revealed in his word. And here we learn this morning that it's at a wedding, in a house of wine. That's the association we need to have, which brings us to the next surprising character in the story, the wine. Jesus appears as if he's a sort of sommelier, a wine steward at a seven-day-long wedding party. Well, look with me at verses 6 to 10. Now, there were six uh, stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. It's a lot of water. You all know what a gallon of milk looks like. Well, now you've got each six of those with 30 gallons of milk, right? Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus then turned the water and the six stone jars into wine meaning a quantity of at least 80 gallons of wine. And it was not the cheap stuff. It was not what the British and the Australians called plonk. It was a Chateau Lafitte Rothschild. 80 gallons of the stuff came out. Why? Because in the Bible, wine is associated with the presence of the Messiah and with joy. Jeremiah chapter 31, they shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion, and they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain, the wine, and the oil. Many texts like this. And the wedding is associated with the Messianic age. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you, O Israel. In other words, now here is God himself in Christ 
rejoicing at the wedding feast, and he is ensuring that it goes with a swing. He's ensuring that there is not just enough water, that the, 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 the wedding does not simply have um, rancid water and moldy bread, but it has Chateau Lafitte, 80 gallons of wine. It, it's more than anyone at any wedding feast could possibly have drunk. It is an exuberance of joy and blessing or, uh, as, a, as a dowry or gift for the bride, perhaps. Now, of course, this is not saying, therefore, that it's okay for Christians to get drunk. The Bible says, do not be drunk on wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. This is not intended to show to us that, you know, it's okay to have one too many margaritas occasionally. This is not the point. The point is that the, the wine, the house of wine of God is filled with His glory by being filled with His joy. And that what it means to be a Christian is definitively to be a person of joy. And that our circumstances cannot then defeat us as much as they try to do so. I was joking with someone earlier just before this service. This was the third sermon I was going to have to preach on joy. And gosh, you know, three in a row. So I understand that sometimes it can be hard to feel the kind of joy this passage has. But joy is not a matter of our feelings. Joy is an objective expression of who God is irrespective of the circumstances. And the goal of this passage, and my goal this morning, therefore, is that we would enter into this house of wine. So whatever the circumstances you're going through, whatever you think or feel about whatever news has happened recently at Wheaton College, whatever you think about that, whatever your health situation may be, whatever your temperament may be, and those things can go up and down and up and down. You now have, through this revelation of who God is in Christ, an anchor for your soul in the storm. You have a place of joy because you have a person of joy. This joy then is transformative for how we live as Christians. F.F. F. Bruce put it like this, Christ has come into the world to fulfill and terminate the old order and to replace it by a new worship which surpasses the old as much as wine surpasses water. So there are all those Jewish purification rites. They have to wash themselves over and over and over again. They've got to somehow purify themselves, cleanse themselves externally. And Jesus, I think, deliberately takes those 80 gallons of water that is used for all this legalistic religiosity and at a simple command of God himself, he creates wine and is intended to preach to anyone who was there, anyone who hears about it, that this is the God we worship. And that his eternal plan for you who follow him is so much joy that it it, it simply could not be consumed in all the time of infinity. And therefore, of course, we rejoice. Because this is what God has planned for us in the house of wine. So second, the, the wine, first the mother, third the disciples, verses 11 and 12. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Canaan and Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. 
After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. So Jesus here has manifested his glory, which the disciples then believe in him because he has through the sign of the miracle of changing water into wine. Miracles are not what happens all the time. We Christians do not believe that God always does miracles, otherwise they would not be miracles by definition. What we believe is that God is able to do miracles because God constantly holds the created order in his hands by his word. It is an expression of his order that the world around us is ordered. But God, at a simple command, can in a moment turn water into wine. And you say, well, is it possible, scientifically speaking, to turn water into wine and just do it like that? Well, the answer is, of course not. And that's why it's a miracle. That that God does it though no one else could. And so we, as it were, enter into the Sherlock Holmes principle. When you've exhausted all other possibilities, the one remaining, however unlikely, must be true. None but God could do this, the disciples reasoned. And therefore, none but God did. Who else could raise from the dead? None but God could do this, therefore none but God did. Who else could turn water into wine? None but God could do this, and therefore none but God did. It is so important, and I want to emphasize again this morning, that my goal is that we would see His glory in this wedding, in this marriage feast, in this sign of who he is, and having seen that, therefore enter into his joy. And it is so important that we take the time this morning to, as it were, boost our spiritual immune system so that when we're faced with all these other ideas of what God is or what Christianity is, we have in our mind a house of wine, the brilliance of the joy of the glory of God. It's hard, to, it's hard to do that, I know. It reminds me of the story of the husband and wife who uh, went to see uh, the family doctor. The husband had been sick for a while, and so they went to see the doctor, and after the doctor had examined the husband, the uh, Uh, The doctor asked the wife to stay behind. He wanted to have a few words with her about taking care of her husband. And so the husband left the room and the wife was there and the the physician began like this. Now, you you need to listen. Your husband is uh, is facing death. And for him not to die, you must uh, give in to his every whim. You must feed him the best breakfast that he could possibly want and the best dinner. You must massage his feet three times a day. You must satisfy his every desire, morning, noon, and night. Otherwise, he's going to die. So the wife leaves the doctor's office, and the husband and wife um, walk to the car park and get into the car and drive off uh, somewhat in silence. And eventually, the husband turns to his wife and says this, So what did the doctor say? The wife responds in this way. She says, It's bad news. He says, You're going to die. It's 
so many of us, because of these associations in our media, because of these associations in our culture, have a voice that is constantly telling us that Christianity is not a house of wine, it's a funeral. But it is not. And what I want for us this week is to have in our mind this association, this wedding, this marriage, this glory, this joy. So every time you think to yourself, you know, I'm not going to bother reading my Bible this morning. Or every time you think to yourself, you know, I'm just going to watch that R-rated Netflix movie. It's It's not a lot more fun. The real place of joy and glory and celebration and exuberance is in Christ Himself. And it is this that is going to raise up the next generation of missionaries. It is this that's going to raise up the next generation of Christian leaders. It is this that is going to help us suffer well for Christ's glory because we know we have that which cannot ever be taken away from us, namely eternal joy, eternal glory, and life in all its fullness. Let's pray together. Lord, I want to pray uh, as uh, we come towards the close of this service, particularly for the individual here who has come with a significant decision on his mind. He is faced with a choice to follow you and all the challenges that that will bring or reject you for the offer of what seems very pleasurable. And I pray for that individual, Lord, that you would show him by your Spirit that that is not the choice. The choice is between that which lies and deceives and is not pleasurable but will turn to dust and ashes in his mouth and that which is life to the full and forever. Will you show us all that, uh, we pray, Jesus, as we rejoice with thanksgiving in this house of wine. In the name of Jesus, amen.